Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. Today is March 29, 2021, and our guest is economist Valentin Bolotny from Stanford University's uh, Hoover Institution. Valentin, welcome to Policy McCombs. Thanks very much for having me on. So before we start going on, on details of the two papers that we're going to talk about today, uh, tell us a little, about, a little bit about your research portfolio and generally what you're interested in as an economist. Yeah, uh, thanks again for, for having me on. Um, I think of myself as a public and labor economist um, and interested in a broad range uh, of topics. Uh, those two fields allow one to be um, pretty spread pretty wide in terms of research interests. So I've um, worked on uh, the gender earnings gap and trying to understand where, um, where that comes from. Uh, I'll be presenting on that paper later this afternoon. Um, I've worked on graduate student mental health and I'm uh, getting more and more uh, into uh, research questions around mental health and how they're connected to um, our other uh, social um, uh, issues uh, from gun violence uh, to um, uh, unemployment and, and uh, the opioid epidemic, for example. Um, and I've also uh, you know, partnered with uh, government agencies um, on, on other issues. For example, why is it that uh, infrastructure costs are so high, especially in the US? Um, and uh, I think that is also fruitful uh, direction, not just uh, for researchers like me, but for, for students uh, partnering with uh, public sector entities um, to work on questions that um, have to deal with public service provision uh, and improvement of public service provision, but also at the same time, um, increase our understanding of how societies um, and uh, social interactions function and um, helping students also um, uh, get great projects out of the work uh, and towards their degrees. So um, that's that's uh, generally uh, where I stand research-wise. Okay, before we go into the papers, you, you mentioned something that I, I want to follow up with. Why, why is it that infrastructure projects cost so much in the U.S.? What have you found so far? Well, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's a really... <laughs> I know it's a loaded big question, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's a great question with, with many different parts to it, but I think... Um, one, one of the things that we're finding is, uh, you know, the, the devil's in the details. Um, we're uh, not spending enough on maintenance. Uh, not, uh, and, and, and when we do, it's usually in batches as opposed to a continuous flow. Um, so what we have is a lot of projects that are, um, you know, bridges and roads and, um, um, you know, water infrastructure that is really uh, behind uh, in, in, uh, in maintenance and, and, and its quality, which then uh, results in having to do really drastic measures, even more drastic than maybe the entity that's managing them realizes. Um, so that's one piece. The other piece, um, there's been some really good work on this, um, on the role of citizen voice. Uh, you know, we design projects, um, but then interest groups kind of uh, halfway, midway through the project um, end up uh, hijacking the project and uh, essentially getting their way, uh, getting uh, the aspects of the project that they really wanted initially but didn't uh, get. Um, they end up uh, getting, getting, forcing those in through political economy uh, channels. And, and that, you know, uh, is a delay, that is a cost overrun, 
um, all of those uh, things start um, start colliding. So, so those I think are um, are, are are main uh, the main issues. Um, there's also you know uh, kind of a lack of uh, competition uh, issues, and um, that that's uh, uh, also you know part of the part of the part of the story. All right, so let's move on to to um, the topics of today. So this afternoon, as you mentioned, you're going to be presenting on why do do women earn less than men? Evidence from bus and train operators. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time. I teach statistics to 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 our students generally, and and I always speak as the the pay gap is a great example of, of something that we start with a with a big number, right? And then we start thinking about okay, where's this number coming from? This is a number that tells us the whole story, right? It's a it's a great teaching tool, and is a is a is a tool that that oftentimes the devil is said is in the details. Um, and you have the super interesting paper uh, that gets evidence from a very specific situation that can isolate some things. So let's go through it. Give us a, the, the the big picture of it. That, that that's right. So we, we focus in on one particular workplace, um, but we think that what we find in this particular workplace has uh, generalizable lessons for the rest of the United States for what's happening, as you're saying, um, in in the big picture. And the two main uh, of forces that we find driving the gender earnings gap um, is uh, first uh, lack of flexibility in the workplace, kind of rigidity in scheduling. Um, and secondly, a very related um, feature uh, are social norms are, um, you know, still very much the fact that uh, women have higher demands on their time outside of work than men do. Um, and, and those two things uh, interact in our workplace to generate the earnings gap that we see. Um, and we think that uh, those are issues that are uh, affecting the country as a whole. So what is that workplace? Let's, let's go through, through it carefully. Yeah, this, this workplace is the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, the uh, public transit entity that serves the greater Boston area. And uh, what we're looking at, the employees that we're looking at are bus and train operators. Um, the reason the T is such a good place to study the gender earnings gap is that it's actually a very controlled work environment. Um, everything about the way that uh, work is structured is uh, written out in a collective bargaining agreement between the union that uh, uh, backs up the, the workers and the, the public sector entity, the transit agency. And what that collective bargaining agreement says is that um, everything should be done by seniority. Uh, the routes that people get to drive, that's, uh, those are choices that are offered to operators by seniority. The hours that they get to work, uh, similarly by seniority. Um, wages cannot be adjusted by due to performance or, or other metrics. They're just adjusted automatically given a schedule that is uh, in the collective bargaining agreement um, that uh, you know, is irrespective of, of performance. Uh, or, or any other kind of managerial, uh, potential managerial uh, discretion. So what we have here is, is a place where we can um, cross off a lot of the usual hypotheses that get um, discussed when it comes to the gender earnings gap. You know, managerial discretion is not part of the issue. Occupational sorting is also not um, part of the issue because we're looking at one workplace. Um, Tasks one type very, of job in particular is one type of job, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. So the tasks we know here, the tasks are literally identical. Everyone's driving the same kinds of buses and the same kinds of streetcars. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no uh, need, for example, for workers to negotiate or bargain for wages or promotions or anything like that. 
And which, is still, which is a component in identify another research, right, of the of the associated with the pay gap, the, the sort of aggressiveness in negotiation. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and so here, even though we, we don't have these issues at play, we're still finding uh, a gender earnings gap that is about two thirds of the national gender earnings gap, or about uh, an earnings gap of about 11%. Um, and so and so the, on a dollar. Exactly. In our, yeah. Good. Um, and so we, we dig into why, uh, why, why that's the case. And we find that um, even when we look within the same seniority, so men and women who are facing exactly the same kind of choice sets within this workplace, um, we're seeing women take more unpaid time off from work, especially women uh, with dependents. And uh, we're seeing women accept fewer overtime opportunities than men. And overtime here, is paid at time and a half. So there's an extra um, wage boost to, to these hours that women are uh, foregoing. And, and overtime here is offered by, by seniority as well, just as everything else in, in this workplace. So the, um, routes, the routes lead to no difference in pay. It's just the, the time and uh, when you work is, is the amount of time you work and when you work is what actually leads to, to the difference in pay. Ex exactly. So the, um, the, and really when you work is also not Part of the equation. So if you're working a night shift or you're working, uh, you know, three hours in the morning and five hours uh, late at night, for example, you're still being paid the same amount. Um, overtime is really uh, as a, a way of filling in shifts that are going unfilled. So one, one kind of perverse thing about what's happening here is that women are more likely to be taking leave and that opens up slots that are then paid at overtime rates that men are mostly filling. Um, so that that's uh, that's um, what we're finding uh, going on here. All right. So so let's be uh, talk about some specifics here. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned the the taking taking uh, overtime. So the the decision to to take overtime versus not right. Uh, so that you. In the paper, you, you study this carefully and you try to look at the probability of going in and, 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 and taking over time. Uh, and that probability is dramatically affected by gender, but not only gender, cross with a few characteristics. So, so go through that a little bit. That's right. Uh, so, so we're finding that the, the people who are earning the least in our setting, people who are most likely to um, not accept an overtime opportunity when it is offered to them, people who are most likely to be taking um, unpaid leave uh, in, in our setting, they are unmarried women with dependents. Um, and the people who are most likely to accept overtime opportunities and the least likely to take leave are married men with dependents. Um, so what we're finding um, is, is uh, that um, through, through a number of other steps that um, uh, women are uh, they have more demands on their time, especially we think uh, through um, uh, childcare and other caretaking um, responsibilities. Um, and men, especially uh, you know married men, they um, are uh, uh, they are uh, caretaking in a sense um, through working more hours, and that's where the um, social norms that uh, are, are out there and outside of the workplace are interacting with the uh, construction of, of work uh, inside the workplace. Um, there is no way for operators to uh, trade shifts um, with, within 
the MBTA. So um, once you pick your schedule by seniority um, for the next three months, you can't really move that around. Um, and what we're seeing, we think, is that uh, women uh, turn to unpaid leave as a way uh, of generating flexibility in a workplace that otherwise uh, doesn't offer it, uh, doesn't really have it. Whereas men um, have less of a need to do that and in fact are more willing to work these, these extra hours. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's what we're finding. So, okay, specifically talking about the, the, the pay leave. Um, so I hope you understand here, there's a little bit more. So um, they have, F, F, what is it? FMLA, right? The, the family medical uh, leave. Um, and, and they have the ability to use that. But even the, the strategic use of that relative to the unpaid leave, it plays a role here, right? Right. So, so the, the unpaid leave here is largely uh, FMLA leave. Um, so there's no okay. So there's no there's no okay. So there's no uh, paid leave associated with this with this job, right? There, there is there's some limited amount of sick leave, uh, but that um, actually that the number of hours of sick leave that you have that are, that are paid um, come into play uh, more and more later on in your career. They also increase with seniority. So what you have here is especially the junior folks, right? The, especially the younger people who might be starting families uh, in that process. Um, they are the ones who um, have fewer days of paid sick leave. Uh, and they are the ones who are stuck with the most inconvenient uh, schedules, weekends, holidays, uh, other times when childcare might not be available. Um, and what they end up turning to is uh, Family Medical Leave Act, um, which is, you know, there, there's, no, um, there's no paid uh, leave for caring for children or caring for um, older adults or older relatives, for example. Um, in the U.S., we just have really the Family Medical Leave Act, which is protected unpaid leave. So you can take uh, unpaid leave uh, from, from work, but not fear having to lose your job uh, in the process. And that's what we're seeing women um, use at much higher rates than, than men. And, and, that, and that contributes to the gender earnings Right, right. So, so, so um, I know that was not the focus of the paper, but just wondering about the about that 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 process, right? Of of demanding by social norms, demanding more flexibility in scheduling, uh, has a a particular effect on the junior folks, as you mentioned here. Right, they have less flexibility in the choice set, right? Um, so that do you see in the data a clear sort of dropout rate? For women in that job in the beginning, that's higher than men, which then would lead to a different aspect of the. There, there's some component of seniority that I'm assuming then you're going to have more senior folks in the in the force that are going to be male versus females. Is that is that does that happen there as well? That that, that is happening. Yes, uh, so the, the um, women are slightly more likely to leave um, uh, earlier than um, than the pension eligible uh, age uh, than men. Um, what we're finding also when we look um, at 2016, when the T decided that, uh, you know, it, it was going to kind of clamp down on leave taking um, and, and FMLA was used uh, in the workplace um, as a Friday to Monday leave act. That's what it was uh, called uh, among the operators. Um, so, so the T was uh, taking steps to clamp down on that kind of leave taking. And what we found is um, women taking, as a result, um, a lot more um, unexcused leave. 
uh, not coming into work uh, at all without giving notice um, uh, to, to, to their employer. And so that, that's, um, you know, we're finding that actually uh, clamping down on uh, the availability of, of leave and uh, on uh, the flexibility uh, within the workplace, that that is, is a big contributor to, uh, to the gender ease gap. So uh, interesting because there's a there's a, a sentence you have here is that when they clamped down, I think there was a 2016 change in policy and a 2017 change in policy, you saw a reduction on the pay gap from 12 to nine percent. Uh, right. But then you 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 stated at the same time that, that well there was a, a reduction in well-being for the female workers as a result as well. Exactly. So explain that a little bit. Exactly. So uh, what what we're seeing is that FMLA after this policy change, after it becomes harder to take uh, leave through the Family Medical Leave Act, people do in fact take less of it. Um, but uh, there's a rise in unexcused leave that's not quite one for one. Uh, so FMLA falls by more uh, than unexcused leave rises. And I apologize for the noise behind me. Um, but um, in the process, uh, you know, it, it's costly. Unexcused leave is especially costly to women. If FMLA is excused and they don't have to fear about losing their job, with unexcused leave, they can actually um, face uh, layoffs or suspensions. Um, so they're turning to costlier leave, which is uh, worsening their welfare. Um, and uh, and uh, their, their, uh, the earnings gap is shrinking. Uh, right, they're uh, they're forced to come into work more, and, and they are actually working slightly more hours. Um, but uh, welfare is decreasing, and uh, the T is also not uh, gaining from the perspective of service provision, because managers get less of a heads up with unexcused leave than with FMLA, and it's harder to schedule routes, uh, hard, harder to make sure that they're being fulfilled. Um, so as as a, as a result, what we find is that service actually didn't improve. Uh, and female welfare decreased, even though we had an, a, a, a shrinking of the gender earnings gap. Right. Um, and so that we think is, is uh, quite important when, when workplaces think about what their aim is, what they're going for. Uh, it's actually possible to shrink the gender earnings gap and make it seem like you're, you're making progress on uh, gender equity, uh, but actually in the process make women uh, worse off comes to mind uh, uh, a policy that we have at universities that um, we give everybody in the tenure track uh, 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 line of work equal leave associated with a child. And the typical, I think the typical, you know, you get an extra year in your tenure clock, right? And, and as a result of a child, and I think there's research, recent research that, that, that shows that that actually improves, increases the, pro the, the, the productivity of males in terms of the, the type of CVs they build by the time they go up for tenure, but decreases the one for females. So you're trying to help, right? And at the same time, you create this imbalance as a, as a result, right? Trying to be gender neutral, help, but then you, you make it, you make it a, 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 the consequence again, because the, the flexibility and the demands at home are different between, and those are social norms, right? Exactly, um, and, exactly. So I, I think that's a great example. And uh, this is one of the conclusions of our paper is that, um, employers should think about more than just um, looking within the same occupation, within the same job, and trying to make sure that they're equalizing uh, wages between uh, men and women. There are other uh, factors that might seem tangential to the gender earnings gap um, and, and you know, might, might seem completely fair, like seniority in our setting where it is completely gender neutral. 
Um, but the way that it interacts with, uh, you know, the rest of social norms and what's happening at home uh, for these individuals, that might be actually what's, uh, what's driving the gender earnings gap uh, and, and, uh, and welfare in our setting. So flexibility seems to be like this huge, huge uh, important component of it, right? So, so um, one of the recommendations you have and discussions you have is that if workplaces figure out ways to be more flexible, that will, will generate well-being. You might still end up with a, with a pay gap in the sense that, that you know, choices are such that might lead to a difference, but the overall well-being might be actually better as a, as a result, right? The way uh, people value their time elsewhere. Um, exactly. yeah. The cost of flexibility is, is crucial. Yeah, as the cost of flexibility goes down um, and, and uh, as workplaces um, embrace uh, flexibility more, that should, uh, that should make welfare, that should increase welfare and, and likely decrease the gender earnings gap by allowing women especially to work more hours. Right, and I, I just want to connect a little bit to some of the work that that uh, been done before on, I think, the MBA work that Marion Bertrand and co-authors have done on that, right? I think it shows something similar as well there that it, it's partly connected to the, to the notion that folks in the junior level in particular, by lacking flexibility, you tend to drop out at higher rates, right? So you might start at the same pay level exactly. and then as things progress, especially in that age where you know, there's more demands at home because it's a time of childbearing and so on, the probability of advancement changes dramatically as a, as a, as a result of it. And, and exactly. even though for the ones that stick around, the gap might, might not be there later on, but there's a huge change in trajectory, right? As a result exactly. of the lack of flexibility. So that, that those two things connect uh, uh, very well. Yeah, and, and you know, that's a setting uh, that's looking at MBAs, right? And in our setting, we're looking at bus and train operators who have a high school education. Um, and you have the same this rigidity and inflexibility uh, in the workplace, um, generating the same kinds of uh, kinds of patterns, this, the, the gender earnings gap. So let me ask you a, a, a difficult question in some ways. Think about, we observe also, you know, on the surface, pay gaps, not only in gender, but we also observe that in race. Uh, one thing that you are identifying here, it's very clear, is this effect of unmarried women with dependents in particular have this bigger, uh, th this bigger gap, right? Now that correlates very strongly with race, uh, unmarried with dependents. Uh, so are you familiar at all with that, that any research that looks at that uh, in, the, in the, I guess, I guess the, 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 the gender, so then you have a the sort of double layer issue going on for one group of people that end up being like showing up in some statistics as very, you know, as punished by the labor market in a way that it has to do severely with those social norms or those, just the, the, the realities of, 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 of their, their, their household situation. Yeah, I, I think we can extend what we've been talking about to, to understand uh, these, these differences as well. Um, if we think about what are the kinds of uh, demands that uh, might be facing women more than men, um, it's, it's caring for children and uh, in, in, in caring for uh, elderly parents and relatives. Uh, it also, in this COVID world that we're in, um, even teaching, right, uh, is, in, uh, is an additional uh, piece to caretaking. Um, and what we're finding through, through the surveys that are coming in is that women are much more likely to be uh, taking on these responsibilities. Uh, we've seen a drop in uh, labor force participation, uh, especially among women. Um, and uh, that is uh, 
you know, I think COVID also to kind of keep thinking about uh, what's been happening recently, um, the, the, uh, there are folks that are, have been able to work remotely, have been able to um, uh, transition smoothly into a COVID kind of economy. Uh, and those are usually folks uh, earning higher incomes and um, uh, you know, with, with higher levels of education. And uh, the, uh, the folks who are um, uh, in the service sector, um, working at lower pay jobs, um, they're the ones who've had to choose between uh, staying in the workplace or coming out completely and, and focusing on, on caretaking. Um, and the social norms are, are interacting there as well. If you have more demands um, as a result of um, just having lower income and having, uh, you know, we're also, we know that uh, lower income folks uh, and people of color have been harder hit by the pandemic, by the health impacts. So now if you're also dealing with, with that piece, uh, taking care of uh, sick relatives and potentially uh, chronic health issues coming into play. Um, that's all going to, uh, given the social norms that, that, that we have, that's all going to land on um, the laps of, of women much more so than, uh, than men. And um, I, I, think that's, uh, I, I think that can explain quite a bit of, um, of not just what we're seeing uh, gender-wise, but also uh, with, with the racial component as well. So before we move on here, just the uh, um, social norms, right? I think a lot of things we, we tend to, to try to find blame and try to find a culprit and try to find a, a way to go and solve it. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on, on like not thoughts, but just like, what do we know about our ability to, or even, even transition? Like, what do we know about the, 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 how these this social norms have been changing in time and therefore might be the reason why you know, the, the gap is changing, it, it, it's shrinking right. in time, right? Uh, is that because our companies are being more aware of it? Our companies are being better behave, or is it because somehow the structure at home has been changing, also as culture changes, and therefore, you know, things are more equal, you know, in, at home starting there? So, um, what do we know yeah. about? Yeah, it's it's. I think it's it's both uh, happening in parallel. Um, we've had information technology uh, become quite versatile uh, and quite widely used to the point where there are certain professions, uh, pharmacists, for example, are, are one um, that uh, essentially have no gender earnings gap. Um, and that's because of changes in the technology that workplaces use that allow for greater flexibility uh, in the workplace. Um, but we've also seen social changes. Uh, the birth control pill, for example, has allowed women much more control right, over um, how they manage uh, their professional priorities and their personal priorities. Um, we've seen um, uh, women uh, get more and more going into college and getting um, higher, uh, higher education degrees. Um, and we've seen, uh, you know, women are still doing a lot more uh, household uh, work than men, um, but, but there's been uh, more, more of a balance certainly now than, you know, uh, three, four decades ago, for example. Um, so, so that's, uh, I, I would say, uh, progress, there's been progress in terms of couple equity at the same time that we've had um, progress in, in gender equity in the labor market. Um, there's some evidence, uh, for example, uh, you know, in Quebec, um, where they've um, uh, worked with the way that they provide parental leave. Uh, they've experimented with certain approaches. And one, one thing that they've done is 
um, offered uh, paid five weeks of paid leave that they're calling the daddy quota, uh, leave that only men uh, can take and, and benefits that only men uh, can receive if they take um, if they take parental leave. And there's preliminary research from that that shows that not only uh, does take up of uh, leave increase when uh, you set certain leave aside specifically for men, but also several years down the road, uh, they do more household uh, chores and they, they uh, spend more time taking care of uh, the kids. So there's a certain way I think in which um, incentives uh, can be set by public policy um, to help us move in that direction of greater couple equity and, and um, to, to nudge norms uh, in, in, that, um, in that direction. All right, so final question on this topic. Um, there's a recent paper uh, that looks at the, the, the gender earnings gap on another public transportation device, which is on Uber. Um, and, and can you comment a little bit on the similarities of your results to their results? I think I'm, I'm, I'm looking at their, their, their abstract here. And in there, they're identifying experience as a big component uh, constraints over where to work. So I think something to do with safety in particular and men being more willing to work in unsafe locations. Uh, and the final one is driving speed. So apparently the, the, the choices again, uh, risk-taking from, from males lead to more, more, uh, more runs, I suppose, in, in the system. That's right, that's right. That uh, setting is in some sense the exact opposite of ours in that with Uber, drivers have complete flexibility and complete control over their schedules. Um, whereas in our setting, uh, operators uh, are very constrained. Um, and uh, as a result, I think that's why in, in this um, Uber paper, what they're finding is that, uh, you know, the, the key uh, differences are have to do with kind of the nature of driving, uh, men driving faster than women, um, or with uh, the fact that um, uh, if you just look at kind of the, the whole pool of drivers, men have been driving uh, for slightly longer than women, uh, and they have greater experience with uh, where to go when the rates, uh, where the rates will increase uh, at, at which times. But I think when they control for that experience, uh, that part of the story goes away for them. Um, so that's, uh, that's, those are the kind of, I think, the, the differences. But um, that is one, flexibility is, is one, one big difference. And that's a good example of a, of a space where technology uh, really you know, takes, uh, takes flexibility um, to a very high level. And still choices remain, right? There's still, that, that's the part that I think it's, it's, it's uh, um, very interesting as well, is that there's this notion that somehow we can make it disappear everywhere. And like, well, there are the group differences in choices and preferences, and that's might be true because of social norms, might be true because of risk tolerance. There, there are things that you know will persist no matter what policies we have. In those two examples, you have very gender neutral policies in 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 the in the uh, uh, in the T and at Uber, and still right. you're going right. to observe that, right? That realization, I think, is an important thing as well. As I said, I said you know. Unless we reduce those, if, 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 I don't know how to change that part. The risk aversion, for example, if there is a difference between the groups, I don't know how to fix that if that leads to higher pay in some, uh, in some settings, right? Right. I, I think the, the question is uh, not whether um, you know, we'll ever get to a gender earnings gap of zero. 
but but whether 20% or 18% that, that we're looking at now uh, nationwide, uh, and, you know, and, and something like 30, 40% for, for people of color, women of color, um, that that's you know, are we at an optimal now? And I and I think the evidence generally suggests that that we're not. So let's move on to mental health. Uh, in particular, you you um, wrote a paper recently on the mental health of graduate students, graduate students in economics. Um, so, yeah, tell us about that. Well, wh why did you choose that setup? Was it setup just because were you familiar with, uh, where you know where you just finished grad school, or or, or was that any any specific reason for that? Yeah, I, I started the project when I was a graduate student myself um, at Harvard. And uh, this was um, winter of 2015. And there was a suicide in the MIT economics PhD program. Um, a graduate student was also in the third year, just as I was. And our cohorts were, were very close. Um, and uh, at the time, we were also lucky to have departmental leadership and um, just general interest uh, and energy uh, among the students uh, to understand mental health issues among graduate students uh, better to understand um, why something like this could happen in our community uh, and, and to do something about it. And uh, I, I uh, ended up collaborating with another student in the, pro in the Harvard Economics Program and with uh, Paul Barrera, who's uh, until recently the head of um, Harvard University Health Services. And the way we approach the problem is the way I think uh, economists uh, generally approach these things. Uh, we went out and uh, collected data, uh, analyzed it, and tried to see if uh, there were some policy suggestions that we could, uh, that we could come up with. Um, what we found when we did our surveys um, is that uh, they're really high rates of uh, depression, anxiety, um, and even suicidal ideation among uh, economics PhD students. Uh, we found rates that were two to three times um, what we would see in the general population of um, uh, individuals kind of in the same, in the same age range, uh, mid to late 20s. Um, and let me, just, uh, let me just ask a question there. Uh, two or three times, and that controls for um, like the sort of level of stress in the job, or or similar types of jobs as well, or, or no, just generally for the cohort age cohort. Just generally for the age cohort. Okay. Uh, just generally for the age cohort. Um, there's additional work that's been done. Harvard now uh, has a graduate student mental health initiative that's university wide, where they're doing similar surveys across other um, graduate departments. And uh, generally what they're finding there are uh, even higher rates uh, than what we found in the economics department. Um, uh, prevalence rates of moderate and severe symptoms of depression, anxiety uh, of 20% plus. Um, and, and we were finding something like 17, 18% in, in um, economics uh, programs. So uh, that's, uh, you know, we, th that's really high. Uh, it's really high uh, in um, in terms of uh, just just in in in, in absolute terms and in, and in relative terms, uh, those are really high numbers. Um, and, and, and just just to to um, again immediately go into the selection the selection aspect here. Mm -hmm. Is there any reason to believe that graduate students, just the type of people that decide to go into PhD programs, and or even people that they do the things in life in order to be a graduate student at Harvard in particular, right? Um, yeah. Is there 
a selection that leads to people that have more tendencies of, 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 of uh, uh, mental health problems or, or, or not, there's no reason to believe that. There is, there is slight selection in that uh, we, we see this when we ask students, um, were you diagnosed with a mental health issue prior to coming into the PhD program? And uh, those rates are slightly higher than uh, what, what we would expect, uh, but not enough to explain the- uh, The, the, the large numbers you're finding, right, right. Exactly. And, and we're also seeing that um, students towards the end of their PhD program uh, are experiencing um, much higher rates of uh, these symptoms than at the beginning of their uh, PhD program. Even though when we look at the cohorts, uh, they're coming in with a similar, similar prevalence rates of uh, mental health issues. So um, there's, there's kind of, you know, of course, this is, uh, this is not a causal study that we performed. We, uh, you know, collected data and correlated things. Um, but uh, there's, I would say, kind of a, a preponderance of evidence uh, to suggest that um, uh, this time spent in, uh, in PhD programs um, has, has, a, has a significant negative effect on, on mental health. Um, and we dove in to some of the reasons why this might be the case. And, and what we're finding um, are things that have also been talked about uh, in the U.S., broadly, uh, and in fact, in, in developed uh, advanced economies broadly. Um, but we think there's a particular um, amplification of those forces in, in the graduate programs. So increases in isolation uh, and, and, and loneliness, um, a lack of social support, whether it's from um, fellow students or from advisors um, or uh, even outside of the, uh, the PhD program. Um, a, in particular, this is uh, an issue for economic students, um, a kind of normalization of suffering. Uh, very few economic species students, even those experiencing some of these really awful symptoms, um, are actually going and receiving treatment. Um, and about two times as many um, students, uh, uh, graduate students at, writ large at Harvard, for example, are who are experiencing these symptoms are getting treatment. Um, so uh, that, that's also, uh, we think, um, an issue. And we, we zoomed in specifically on advising relationships. Um, that's where uh, that, that has, in conversations that we've had with students and also in the survey data that we collected, uh, that was, uh, you know, that's where the kind of the, the sirens were blaring. Um, and, what I think are our most valuable insight there is that it's not so much the quantity of uh, number of meetings that students have with advisors or how many advisors they have. It's the quality of the relationship. Um, and with advising, uh, it's, it's tricky because advisors are both evaluators. Uh, they're the ones signing off on the dissertation and writing recommendations for jobs. Um, they're also sources of support. Uh, or they're supposed to be, you know, who are uh, guiding uh, the individual through the program and, and trying to make sure that they succeed. Um, but what that generates, that, that tension generates uh, potential for lack of trust uh, or you know, not, not very high levels of trust. Um, and we're, we're finding students telling us that they uh, really can't be honest with their advisors um, about uh, not just 
personal issues and mental health issues, uh, but even research progress and uh, what they want to do after they graduate. Um, and that, uh, that kind of tension, uh, you know, when you're putting your whole life uh, or five or six years uh, of it um, in, into, into this work, that tension can really, uh, we think, um, hurt mental health. And, and if, if it's uh, accumulating over years, uh, that can be particularly acute towards the end of the program when these kind of very big decisions start becoming very salient and, and very uh, important. Yeah, so, so I mean, anybody that had gone through grad school will realize that, that a lot of what you're saying is not surprising, right? So, so a lot of times when you're finding research data on something, you're like, oh my God, this is surprising. If you've gone through grad school, you know that all you're saying makes absolute sense. You know exactly how fearful can be a conversation with an advisor sometimes if you're having trouble and so on. So I'm sure a lot of people relate to that. But um, clearly the levels is what I think is very surprising. The level of, of not getting to a point of just that this is a very stressful time in your life, but to a point where now you have actually derived mental health uh, issues associated with it. Right? That's what, what gets really scary. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a, you mentioned a couple of things that are, are I think sources of variability that might be interesting to explore here. And I wonder if you have any information on that. So first you, you mentioned the notion of um, isolation and that is particularly true in economics. So, so I come from a field that's a little bit different in economics, a lot of similarities, but a little bit different where uh, we are encouraged to work together and co-author from the very early days of your PhD. So, you know, it's not uncommon to get somebody getting out of their, 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 their uh, experience as a graduate student in statistics, having four or five papers, all of them co-author, whether with one advisor or multiple people and so on. So that's, that's not atypical. And that's sort of similar to what the model you see in sciences generally, like if you're working on the lab, if you're working on, yes, you're going to be responsible for a project, but there's a, there's a team involved in that. Uh, so, is there variation in, but, but, but you did mention that it seems that Harvard is pointing out to, 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 to maybe more in other, in other groups, which is, would be surprising to me. Um, and the, the other one that, that I, I wonder if you have any information on is, is how much of that, is there in, in the time series, how much of that has an impact on the job market, right? Again, the exit aspect of it. So are the folks getting into tenure track jobs, which are you know, the, the most stressful time of the graduate career is gonna be, it's gonna be that stage, right? Are they, uh, is that being a causal link to being successful in the, the professorship sort of chase or, or not? I think we lost you there for a second. Yeah, I, I think the co-authorship question, am I here? I yeah, yeah, I can hear you. I cannot, see, right, there you're back, you're back, good. Okay, sorry about that. That's okay. Um, I think, the, the co-authorship um, question is a really important one. Um, I, I think we're... You're, I can hear you. I can bit. hear you. Um, you. You can hear me. Okay. As long as you can hear me, that's, yeah, it's, no, that's I can important. See, I can hear and see you right now. So, so. Um, Great. Okay. Great. The, the co-authorship uh, point and... Uh, Incentives for collaboration. I think that that's a really uh, that's a really great point, um, and one that we're we're working with uh, departments on widely. Um, Co-authorship has generally been discouraged in economics. You're absolutely right about that, and I think um, especially you know for for uh, students in the, in the earlier years, um, 
when you're trying to figure out what you want to work on, what you want to um, specialize in. Um, if you're not uh, talking to your peers about it, uh, you're losing out professionally, um, but you're also um, losing out personally. And those are the things that we really can be um, things that open gates to other social connections and other conversations. I am really good friends with a lot of my co-authors. Um, and those initial, uh, you know, the, the way that I became friends with them was through this uh, environment where um, I, I felt comfortable talking to them uh, about research. That, that's the, the first, for a lot of students, um, uh, a, a kind of good icebreaker in, in, in some ways. Um, so if we're in, encouraging that kind of, um, those kinds of conversations, encouraging students to uh, create quality social relationships uh, with each other, I think that can go a long way, not just within the PhD program, but also professionally for, for many years uh, after that. Um, there are other issues, I think, in um, the lab sciences, for example, and in some of these um, other programs that are showing higher rates of uh, mental health issues um, than, in, than in economics. Um, you might be working in a group, but uh, if um, your um, supervisor uh, has uh, created an environment that isn't uh, very friendly, um, you might have mental health issues as a result of that, as opposed to a lack of uh, social connection from, from your peers. So this is where I think department-specific introspection is, uh, is crucial to, to, to understanding what's going on. Um, and then uh, your, your question about tenure, I think um, the, the one piece of evidence that I can uh, provide is that you know, we, we ask students, uh, how important are certain things to you um, from a perspective of uh, feeling fulfilled and feeling like you've uh, had a successful life and career? Uh, and the things that we listed and had students respond to were tenure, uh, tenure at high-ranked academic institution, those list of items. And uh, what we found is that you know, depression and anxiety, all of these symptoms were affecting students similarly uh, across all of these uh, items. So if someone was saying that they really uh, value tenure at a high-ranked institution, that's really important to their sense of success in life, they were just as likely to have high uh, you know, and poor mental health uh, scores as those who were saying that uh, actually that's not that important to them and what's really important to them is uh, you know, having a high income, for example. Um, so, so we think that um, these kinds of issues, at least in grad school, are affecting uh, folks pretty um, independently of, um, of what their um, uh, desire is for, for next steps after grad school. Um, but, but of course, there may very well be that kind of selection that you're talking about that um, you know, who goes on to stay in academia uh, could very well be um, folks who, uh, folks who um, uh, have a low, uh, lower mental health scores, better, better mental health scores. Which right. is um, just a matter of like resilience, right? That, that uh, folks that on a particular cohort might end up, end up having the ability to manage that easier than, than or better than, than others, right? And, and, but again, that's a testable thing. I suppose you could look at the same survey when you go to people like one year before getting tenure, right? Are we looking at 
uh, comparable levels of, of mental health there. Is there any work on that on, on, on the, I would assume that there is some research done on, on faculty members um, at that stage. You know, not, not so much and not so much and uh, not, not that I'm aware of actually. Um, I, we, we tried to include um, questions about mental health in the faculty surveys that we also administered and we got some pushback on that. I think uh, even with uh, uh, lots of uh, promises of data security uh, and uh, those kinds of things, uh, there were to fill out mental health related surveys and, and provide that data to, to researchers. Um, there's work happening now uh, trying to survey uh, other departments, and, and not, not just at Harvard, but work in Europe that I know of and, and work in other um, at other universities, but I don't think any of them have been able to um, have been able to get faculty on board with uh, with these kinds of questions. Um, so that that's I think whoever can do that uh, and, and do that effectively, I think has a great paper uh, on their hands. So uh, a question linking back to the previous paper: any gender uh, effect in this data? In terms of prevalence, in, interestingly, uh, there, yeah, very, very, very small uh, difference between men and women. There, there usually is um, in national data, uh, women are more likely to be experiencing these uh, moderate or severe symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, in in our data, uh, women were only slightly uh, more likely. That that surprises not, not statistically significant. So. That surprised me a bit because we have at least anecdotally a lot of discussions about how the environment in grad school in economics in particular might not be so um, uh, uh, accommodated, uh, not, not as so, so welcome to women, for example, right? There's a lot of discussion on that currently. Uh, so I would think that that would lead to maybe more unha unhappiness from one group versus the other, but, but I, I, I guess I'm glad you're not finding a big difference there. Yeah. That, that's right. I think we're still, when we're measuring, for example, um, uh, how um, easy would it be for you, uh, how readily would you raise your hand in a seminar setting, for example, uh, we're finding much more hesitancy um, on behalf of the female students than uh, the kinds of hesitancy that, that male students share with us. There are, um, you know, sexual harassment is much more uh, directed towards women uh, in economics departments than, than towards men. There, um, there are uh, these environmental issues, um, but uh, you know, perhaps they're causing stress and, and other uh, issues that are not showing up in these um, uh, moderate or severe symptoms of, of depression and anxiety. Yeah. Valentin, well, thank you so much. This is super interesting stuff. I'm looking forward to your talk this afternoon. Thanks very much for having me, Collins. Thanks for listening to Policy at Macombs. 